And so I learned while researching this book that Andrew Johnson was a man of remarkable consistency, a semi-literate ill-mannered youth who developed his own racist ideology, a semi-literate reactionary president who gained power through racist demagoguery, and in summation, a challenging but rewarding subject for a biography. Before I sign your first editions of my book, Andrew Johnson, An American Life, I'll take a few questions. Yes? Uh, shouldn't liberals like Andrew Johnson because he opposed the radical Republicans? The Republican Party of today bears almost no resemblance to the one of the Reconstruction Era, which fought to extend the vote to all citizens, regardless of color. But wouldn't any Republican today who wants to let black people vote be considered a radical? You have a point, but that doesn't mean today's left should embrace Andrew Johnson. As Republicans learned, sometimes the enemy of your enemy is just your enemy squared. Are there any more questions? Coming to you from Chicago, Illinois, DB Comedy presents The Electables presidential sketch comedy and history for people who can't afford Hamilton. Today's episode, President 17, Andrew Johnson. We want to thank you for being a fan of DB Comedy Presents the Electables. We think even more people would enjoy our show. And if you agree, can you help us? Here's how. Whenever you download one of our episodes, make sure you like us. Add those stars, give us a review, recommend it to your friends. The algorithms of your local podcast download shop will appreciate it, and we at DB Comedy will as well. So enjoy this episode, and bring your friends so they can too. Dr. Matthew Norman is back with us, and should be Dr. James McRae is back with us. And um, in our previous episode, and I just want to start this as a little bit of an observation, George Washington was a president that kind of created a template that a lot of other presidents followed until you get to Andrew Jackson. And Andrew (laughs) Jackson kind of blew that template up, created a different template for better and for worse, And subsequent presidents were really reacting to a lot of what Andrew Jackson had done until you get to the Civil War, in part because of it's a civil war and part because of a lot of what we discussed with Abraham Lincoln. So Lincoln is sort of the third president that breaks up the the, the, sort of the third president where we have this new template. That leads us to, and and also, of course, and also, and this is one of Pat, Patrick's favorite questions of three best, three worst presidents. We get to someone that I think, in some ways, he sort of Andrew Johnson, and I mean, Johnson sort of slips some of into some of those cracks that people would rather talk about: Pierce, Buchanan, uh, Hoover undoubtedly Trump will be in that. But you're nodding your head. I'm thinking, I'm thinking, Dr. Norman, you're going, nope, Andrew Johnson. Top, bad, worst, horrible, terrible, no good, very bad president. Yes. <laughs> that's why yes. I, that's what I usually my like. favorite for the worst. That's why I usually like to tell people to exclude Johnson from their worst, because obviously. Let me start with a weird theory, because this is what we do here on Democracy for Less, the electables. <laughs> um, Johnson was kind of 
uh, Mr. Hyde to Abraham Lincoln's Dr. Jekyll. I mean, they both came from very modest backgrounds. They, I mean, he was an, I mean, Johnson's father died and his mom took in laundry and Johnson actually looked a lot like one of his mom's employers, but yeah. And they're both poor boys, self-made. Abraham Lincoln was, you know, a, a, you know, intellectual giant and a man of enormous empathy and compassion. And Andrew Johnson, who came from such a similar background, was not. <laughs> Am I way off base with that? In that, with that comparison? No, I, I, I do that with students. I begin by talking about how similar Johnson and Lincoln were in their backgrounds. Both products of the frontier, both self-made men. Yeah. But uh, Johnson, a Jacksonian Democrat, Lincoln, a Henry Clay Whig, Lincoln morally opposed to slavery, Johnson, a slave owner. But both really believed in the Union. And that's why when Tennessee joined the rebellion, Andrew Johnson was serving in the U.S. Senate. And he said, well, no, I'm I'm a Jacksonian. I believe in the preservation of the Union. I'm not going to support this treasonous rebellion. And Johnson was the only senator from one of these Confederate states who, who continued to serve even after his state joined the rebellion. And that made him kind of a folk hero to, to Northerners. And that's what ends up getting Johnson on the ticket in 1864, when the Republican Party, in an effort to try and appeal to as many people as possible, they temporarily rebranded themselves in 1864 as the Union Party. And they got rid of Hannibal Hamlin, who was from Maine and a, a good Republican. And instead, they brought in Andrew Johnson. And of course, they never imagined that Abraham Lincoln would not survive his second term in office. They, that, I don't think that occurred to anybody, that this was just a move to appeal to more war Democrats, as they were called. Are you done mending those socks, Andy? I sure am, Miss Selby. I darn the darn things, then I darn the darn things. <laughs> oh, Andy, you're just as witty today as you were when your mother apprenticed you to this tailor shop six long years ago. All right, then. Deliver those socks to the Argyle Estate. Oh, uh, <clears throat> uh, before I go, can we have some intercourse? Well, heavens, no! How can you ask such a thing? Uh, Lordy, Mrs. Selby, how come I'm good enough to have intercourse with half a Raleigh, but not my own boss's wife? Andrew Johnson, how are you spending your free time? Uh, reading books about intercourse and stuff, see? Great American speeches. Isn't that the volume Dr. Hill threw at you when you made his lapels uneven? Yep, he liked the book so much he gave me a gift right in my head. Anyway, it says right here in Mr. Jefferson's inaccurate speech. I believe that's his inaugural speech. Really? I thought he'd given some before. But he says, uh, <clears throat> let us restore to social intercourse that harmony and affliction. I think you mean affection. Well, of course I do. <laughs> Still, I figure when Mr. Jefferson says intercourse, it means talking, right? Sometimes. So what did you want to talk about? Well, I, I just don't like going to the Argyle Plantation and seeing all them Negroes perspiring. Andy, are you an abolitionist? No, nah, I think my and Paul had me baptized Methodist, but, uh, but I, I sure wish there wasn't no slavery in these here United States. 
An abolitionist is a person who opposes slavery. And I've long believed human bondage is a crime, but I've never told anybody. Not even your spouse. Mr. Selby is my spouse, not my... Well, he's both. But anyway, now that I know a fellow abolitionist, maybe I won't be so afraid to speak my mind. Well, let's tell the whole world we're abolitionists. I'm glad we had this intercourse. Uh, now I know you two hate seeing Negroes perspiring with their owners against poor white trash like me. I'm having a bit of trouble following you, Andy. It's right here in the book, Mr. Selby. Goober Morris, uh, New Jersey, said back in 1787 at the Constitutional Convention, <clears throat> the vassalage of the poor has ever been the favorite offspring of aristocracy. See, uh, then African Negroes let themselves be enslaved so they could perspire with the fancy plantation owners to keep low-class Caucasians like me from ever owning any land. I'm not sure that Governor Morris's speech at the convention alluded to a conspiracy between slave and master. No, them slaves and owners were alluding, all right. Uh, now, don't get me wrong, Mrs. Selby. I'm proud to be a humble man. I'm proud that all my pa's businesses failed before he died, and I'm proud that my ma has to work in other people's homes doing laundry. She loves it, too. <laughs> she says she is so fond of her clients that I even look like one of them. I wonder about that statement's legitimacy. Ah, she's pretty strict about it. Uh, <clears throat> and I'm proud to be serving this 11-year apprenticehood with you and Mr. Selby. But I'm still bitter about how the unholy alliance plantation owners and slaves prevents me from owning my own land. Perhaps you oughtn't give up on your dreams so easily, Andy. There's lots of cheap land out west. Where, around Durham? Oh, hell no. Them, them people in Durham don't talk right, and it offends my educated sensualities. And to think you're self-taught. I'll tell you what, Andy, when you return from dropping off these socks to the Argyle Estate, we can intercourse all you like. Oh, boy, you got yourself a deal, Mrs. Ellie. Oh, aren't I fortunate? By the way, I need you to deliver another order. Please take this uh, garter to the Smith House in Knoxville. Why are you keeping the customer's garter on your own body? To keep it warm. A lady doesn't like cold underthings. Oh, I see. But uh, uh, where in Thunderation is Knoxville? Tennessee. Tennessee? Yeah, that's over 100 miles from here. Then you better get started. On your way, Andy. Tennessee is waiting for you. Well, uh, well, all right, Mrs. Selby, but I won't be back for a while. It'll be a long time before we have intercourse. Somehow I'll survive. Goodbye. Now, Andrew Johnson had a deeply weird social theory. He was a man of the people, but those were his people, lower class Southern whites. And it was his sincere belief that plantation owners were conspiring with slaves to keep the poor white man down. That's right. Uh, when... When Johnson became president in the, this, the, this great tragedy of Lincoln's assassination, people were wondering what Johnson would do. How does he fill Lincoln's shoes? And of course, the big issue is how do we bring the country back together? And Lincoln's assassination came right as the rebel armies were surrendering. And Lincoln never had an opportunity to articulate a peacetime reconstruction, or as Lincoln preferred the term, restoration policy. The, the last cabinet meeting that Lincoln held 
on the day of his assassination was devoted to this subject. But again, he's, he's killed that night and now it's up to Johnson. And Johnson decided that he was going to do what he thought Lincoln would have done. And Johnson issues a series of proclamations at the end of May, 1865 that offer very generous terms to the rebels. But one category of people that's excluded from this very generous amnesty that Johnson was willing to grant rebels was one that excluded plantation owners, people that owned at least $20,000 in property. And that goes right to Johnson's belief that the Civil War was really the fault of these rich Southerners. And, and he wanted them to personally ask him for a pardon. That's why they were excluded from this amnesty. Yeah, Johnson yeah. was pretty regularly on the wrong side of history throughout his entire career. Yeah. Uh, he opposed the building of railroads in Tennessee. I, yeah, I had a student who was interested in Andrew Johnson and he did this great paper. For oh God, why? Well, <laughs> he is he's an interesting character, even if he's not necessarily likable. And Johnson... You're talking about Johnson and not your student, right? Right, yeah. It, jo Johnson was a big believer in the Constitution and in a very strict interpretation of the Constitution. And this is one of the reasons why Johnson will veto a lot of the measures that Republicans will, will get through Congress during Reconstruction that have to do with um, providing civil rights for, for African-Americans. But one of the things a student of mine found was a speech that Johnson gave when he was in Congress uh, opposing the creation, the building of sidewalks in Washington, D.C. <laughs> yeah, because, of course, D.C. built on a swamp gets very muddy and you can read firsthand accounts of just how horrible Washington was in the spring. And it would rain and it would be impossible to get anywhere because these streets and walk. So Congress wanted to appropriate money for sidewalks. And Johnson gives this speech where he says, well, you shall be in the Constitution where it says that the federal government can, can build sidewalks for the nation's capital and I'll support it. Wow. I mean, I, I would say the interstate commerce clause, but that's just me being facetious. <laughs> <laughs> Stack him up, boys. Raise them blocks and bricks to the sky, just like we're slaves building pyramids in ancient Egypt. Except, of course, we're all free white Christian men. Hey, Sonny. You and your little friends want some burgoo? Ma'am, I'm not Sonny, but rather Congressman Andrew Johnson of the Tennessee State House of Reprehensibles. Uh, no doubt. Oh, well, I'm old widow handpath of that Tennessee shack up yonder. Now, what are you all up to? Well, me and my fellow proud boys of Tennessee are building a wall, ma'am. A great, big, beautiful wall. Yeah, I ain't blind yet, Sonny. I can see that. But why are you building it across my property? I beg your pardon, ma'am. I wasn't aware I was speaking to a prosperous member of the local landowning genitalia. You ain't. These 20 acres of dirt ain't good for nothing but growing turnips and burying husbands. Uh, beg pardon, Widow Henpeck. Perhaps we should have knocked on your door, but you know what the old saying. It is easier to ask for forgiveness than persimmons. <laughs> you ain't getting neither from me. Who are you trying to keep out with your wall? The Mongol hordes of North Carolina? The Iron Horse, ma'am, which is a Trojan horse, full of gifted Greeks offering the masked serpent of progress. 
Sonny, you sure got away with the words. Well, my oral skills have thrilled men all over the state. Well, that explains the patches on your knees. But it don't explain why you're afeard of a horse statue. Oh, I, I was speaking metacarpally, ma'am. The Iron Horse is another name for that steam locomotive. Wait, someone wants to build a railroad in Tennessee? Yes, ma'am. Those fancy New York financiers are plotting with the local white aristocracy and their confederates, the Negro slaves, to bring modernity to this state. Well, it's about time, ain't it? It's never time for wheeled metal bee-moths to bear people on goods non-stop from Knoxville to Memphis in less than a day. Less than a day? That sounds like a miracle. Not for wagon drivers, who'll have to pasteurize their horses and work on the railroad all the live-long day, or rural tavern owners who'll lose the business of weary travelers stopping off for a tankard or a five, then chasing the local girls around. <laughs> That's how I got stuck with three of my husbands. Tis a loss. That's why these Tennessee patriots have grabbed my great big jugs of moonshine in exchange for helping build the Great Wall of Chattanooga to stop the choo-choo. Oh, I wish I still had jugs to offer them. Mr. Johnson, you're going to make all of us in Tennessee look like hayseeds. Well, that's the idea. We're going to show highfalutin milliners like Cornelius Vanderbilt that he can't come down to Tennessee waving his money around buying up our land. What? Some silk stocking New York banker might show up in my turnip patch offering a bag of gold for this bunch of barren earth where I've barely even been able to grow enough turnips to make burgoo for my seven late husbands. I grow exercised at the very thought. Me too. Mr. Johnson, you should run for the U.S. Congress. But old winter henpeck, you can't even vote. Neither can most people in this state. So you won't have to work too hard to gain a majority. Are you a Whig or a Democrat? Well, both. I switch my party afflictions based on the liquor they're serving in the caucus room. <laughs> well, we need that kind of spirit in Washington. Andrew Johnson, stop erecting this damn full wall and start your campaign right now. It's time you stopped impeding progress here in Tennessee and started impeding progress for the nation as a whole. But, but what about Mr. Vanderbilt? Oh, well, I can take care of Mr. Vanderbilt. Now take a look at all this dumb white trash out here following you around like a flock of sheep. You can't tell me there ain't enough yokels here in Tennessee to elect you to Congress. And if anyone in your district decides they're too educated to vote for you, tell them old Vitter Handpeck is gonna force feed them a bowl of her legendary... Turnip and possum burgoo, just like I did all my husbands. Well, I don't want to be accused of often brides. <laughs> oh, you'll just be accused of voter intimidation. No one prosecutes that. Anyway, go. Washington is waiting for you. Oh, Winter Henpeck, you, you done show me the light. I can't thank you enough. My gratitude is infinitesimal. And one day America's will be too. Now go. A change of plans, fellers. I hear the voice of density calling. <laughs> Old Twitter Vanderbilt. I like the sound of that.
Well, it also seems to show, and we'll, we'll certainly get into more of that policy stuff, but again, talking about the yin-yang of, uh, or goofus and gallant of Lincoln and Johnson. That's um, more accurate than yin-yang. It's, it's, it's not just, and we actually didn't talk a little as much about Lincoln, the personality, but I there, again, there is the sense that Lincoln knew how to get along, and Johnson not only did bad things, but he did it in a really abrasive, horrible stupid way that just made enemies of everybody he ran into. It's the most yeah. Trumpian of the no, other non-Trumpian presidents. Yeah, I, w- I was going to say, it does seem uh, most of Lincoln's cabinet were not fond of Andrew Johnson, nor wanted to really keep serving under him. Uh, what was what did Lincoln think about Johnson? I, you know, I think that uh, Lincoln appreciated the fact that Johnson was a unionist, and Johnson helped persuade Lincoln to exempt the entire state of Tennessee from the Emancipation Proclamation, <laughs> even though U.S. military forces did not control all of Tennessee on January 1, 1863. Lincoln had appointed Johnson as the military governor of Tennessee. And Johnson was opposed, of course, to the Emancipation Proclamation. And he said to, he convinced Lincoln to exempt the entire state and not just the, the portions of Tennessee that were under federal occupation. Did Lincoln really need Johnson to win the 1864 election? Or did McClellan really have a shot? Well, okay, but bad word. Bad choice of words there, but you know. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, I... I don't know if Lincoln did, but certainly uh, in August 1864, Lincoln thought that there was a very good chance he would lose. Lots of people thought that. Yeah. And uh, the, the war was not going well and people were getting tired of the war. And Lincoln was was so worried about losing the 1864 election. He did he did a couple of really interesting things. One is that he he met with Frederick Douglass at the White House. And Douglas and Lincoln discussed what would happen if Lincoln lost. And Lincoln knew that, and this was before the Democrats nominated McClellan, but Lincoln knew that whoever replaced him, that one of his first actions would be to revoke the Emancipation Proclamation. And he and Douglas discussed a plan that would be executed in the event of Lincoln losing, where you would have kind of an above ground version of the Underground Railroad, where Douglas would help organize an operation to get as many uh, African Americans out of the Southern states as possible before Inauguration Day, Hmm. in anticipation of the new president revoking the Emancipation Proclamation and making some kind of negotiated peace with the Confederacy. The other thing that Lincoln did is he had a cabinet meeting and he drew up a memorandum, a very short memorandum where Lincoln said that it, it is uh, unlikely, it looks like I'm going to lose the election, I'm paraphrasing, but it will be my duty between the election and the inauguration of the new president to preserve the union because the new president will be elected on a position that will make it impossible for him to do it once he takes office. And Lincoln drew up this memorandum, didn't show it to anybody, and he, he folded it up and he passed it around the table to all of his cabinet members and he made them sign it on the back without knowing what was in it. <laughs> and, and what Lincoln did there, this is often called the blind memorandum because the, the cabinet members didn't know what was in it. 
-hmm. What Lincoln was doing there is he was saying, I'm not going to be another James Buchanan. And he wanted to make sure that all of his cabinet remained loyal because one of the things that happened during the lame duck period for Buchanan is that a lot of his cabinet resigned. And some resigned because Buchanan wasn't strong enough in responding to secession and some resigned to join the rebellion. And Lincoln wanted to make sure that he had a unified administration. Yeah, there are a lot of interesting contrasts between the two. We were talking about Lincoln's second inaugural address, one of the greatest speeches in, in the entire English language. Well, uh, a tradition I think that's fallen by the wayside is that vice presidents used to give inaugural addresses. <laughs> and Johnson gave a horrible inaugural address. Hey, be I'm fair. He was drunk. Lincoln said, Andy ain't no drunk, and he wouldn't lie. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I'm, I'm just reading this now. Uh, uh, he apparently, when he was sworn in as vice president, uh, was hung over from the day before, but also uh, made the current vice president, Hannibal Hamlin, give him another couple of, couple of shots before he went on and tried to, tried to swear himself in as vice president. Yeah, it was, uh, the newspaper accounts, you know, it was a mess. And it was almost like the, uh, you know, the old vaudeville where they have that giant hook where they pull the person <laughs> off stage, but they just had to take Johnson off. He was just so, rambling and making no sense. And they finally just just had so, to yank him off stage. And he pointed so people on stage and saying, who are you again? Mr. Johnson. Hey, hey, Mr. Johnson. I'm inducted up to my eyeballs. Mr. Vice President, it's a matter of national importance. I don't care how impotent it is. I'm trying to sleep one off. Uh, I have bourbon. Well, why don't you say so? Ah. Whew. Now, uh, who are you? Really? I'm Leonard Falwell of Wisconsin. We've met several times. We've uh, both boarded in this house for over a month. Never mind. I have urgent news. Mr. Johnson, I'm afraid that President Lincoln has been shot. Are you all right? I was going to spit out this witch's brew, but then I wouldn't feel the effects. I don't like to abuse alcohol. He's been shot? Who, who did it? Uh, the actor, John Wilkes Booth. Good Lord, just think. I almost attended the theater with him. I mean, I would have if, if he'd invited me. Look, we need to get you to a safe place, maybe somewhere up the road at peace, Mr. Johnson. Apparently, President Lincoln was just one of the targets in a conspiracy to assassinate the highest leaders in the land. Wait, what? Yes, apparently Mr. Booth thought that General Grant would be at the theater with Mr. Lincoln and plan to kill both. Booth planned to kill both? Booth planned to kill both. It's been a plot since birth. And then some stunningly handsome rebel madman attacked Secretary of State Seward's house. Damn near killed everyone there. Now we should get you out of harm's way immediately. The fate of the country could depend on it. Oh, just a second there, Jerry. It's Leonard. Whatever. Were they going to send an assessor after me? Oh, uh, yes, after a fashion. Well, who'd they get? Uh, ooh, did they get a more famous actor to come shoot me? Um, no, not exactly. It seems the conspirators had intended a man named George Atherow to stab you to death. Azkaban? What kind of name is that? Wizard? 
That's a rote, and it's German, sir. Deutschland. He emigrated as a child, but that's irrelevant. What we need to do now this is, is terrible news, Farwell. The important thing is that you're safe. And if we hurry They sent some nobody to kill me. Sir. I I, I mean even Seward got some kind of Confederate stud muffin. What I get? Some stupid asymptote. They'll think I planned this whole damn thing. Everyone in Washington already hates me from Halen from the South. Now they'll think I'm Martian to Lincoln. Nobody will think that, Mr. Johnson. You're still in imminent danger. Atzerodt booked the room below yours at this very boarding house. Well, well, then why did he not abscond the stairs and finish the deed? It appears that he decided to forego his mission and spent the evening drinking and then walking the streets of the city. <sighs> That's disgraceful. What kind of man will get blind drunk and abdomen's his duty? Oh, I don't know. What have you been doing since your inauguration? If I take it. Still, this is bad. This is bad. Without a real attempt on my life, they'll think I'm one of them southern conspirators. Which doesn't make sense, because the South never even seceded. I I can't wait for some drunk geranium to show up. I I need some other shooter for money. A hired gun? Sir, there's no... Exactly. I I, I need somebody who's somebody to try to kill me so I can clear my name. I wouldn't hurt my political aspirations none, neither. Want to die? No, no, I just just need a minor celebrity to miss me at close range with a revolver or or stab me in the leg. Uh, Let's see. Oh, ah, this Booth's brother. Why don't they, uh, they don't come more famous than Edwin. Edwin's on tour in Hamlet, but, well, I don't think an actor of that caliber would need to take a job like that. Uh, maybe the oldest brother, Junius Jr. Junius Jr. Ugh. He's like the Thomas Ludwell Lee acted. Who? Exactly. Mr. Johnson, we have to leave now. John Wilkes Booth is still at large. Well, Jack Booth is still alive. Oh, what are we waiting for? We gotta, we gotta contact him. He can tell them I'm no friend to Johnny Reb. Maybe run me through with a saber or something. Uh, actually, he left a card for you earlier today. No. That's wonderful. What is it? A threat? Does he damn me to hell? Uh, it reads, I don't wish to disturb you. Are you at home? Jay Wilkes Booth. Uh, sounds rather friendly, doesn't it? Uh, this is an unqualified apostrophe. If anyone sees that, I'll get hung like a horse. <clears throat> Thief. Uh, you you got to keep my secret for a while. They'll, they'll kick me out of Washington. And things have been so good for me since I got here. All right, Mr. Vice President, if you let me take you to a safe location, I'll see that none of this story sees the light of day. Oh, there's one more thing, Farwell. We'll need to make it look like they made an, an edible attack on my life. You think you could bring yourself to stab me just a little bit? You'll have to make it look like you really want me to die. It would be an honor. Now, one thing we've noticed since we've done, um, you know, we've we've done, so Lincoln is the third president to die in office, and the previous two vice presidents who ascended to the presidency either did not bring in people in the cabinet that would be loyal to them, or the cabinet just kind of looked at them and go, F you. what what happened with the Lincoln cabinet with Johnson? I mean, I think we know, but (laughs) yeah, 
because it leads to another first that we're, we'll talk about. Right. Yeah. He, um, you know, initially he kept Lincoln's cabinet and you now like someone like Gideon Wells, who was the Navy secretary, ended up being a pretty strong supporter of Andrew Johnson. Mm -hmm. And, and in fact, in later years, Gideon Wells wrote essays where he said, yes, Andrew Johnson's reconstruction policy was exactly what Lincoln <laughs> would have done if, if Lincoln had. But uh, Edwin M. Stanton, the Secretary of War, ended up having a big falling out with Johnson over Reconstruction. And one of the things that, that happened is that Congress, the Republicans had a, a decisive majority in Congress. And they began, they, for example, they passed the first civil rights bill in US history in 1866, and, and Johnson vetoed it. And uh, you know, if you read Johnson's veto message, it's it's pretty striking. You know, he's he's saying uh, things like, "Well, you know, this this will completely change our federal system." I mean, the federal government is taking on all this power to protect to protect the rights of these newly freed people. What's next? Intermarriage between black people and white people? Is that what the federal government is going to force these? And that's exactly the kinds of things that were being said about Abraham Lincoln during his yeah, yeah that kind of becomes a go-to argument for the it is yeah, they, yeah. yeah. They, they, why are we letting all these black people who were born here become citizens when we have all these smart foreigners that we're discriminating against exactly and and Johnson yeah he's he's one of these people he's of course not alone who sees civil rights as this zero sum game so if you're extending civil rights to African-Americans. Well, that must mean that you're taking rights away from hardworking white people. And that's what he says in a lot of these messages that you're, you're elevating one race above another. So, so Johnson's um, desire to issue personal pardons, is this like this ego trip for him to all these rich white plantation owners that he'd hated and felt mistreated? He wanted to see them grovel to him before he could issue them a pardon? I, I think so. I don't know how much groveling they had to do, but yes, he wanted them to personally ask for his forgiveness. Wow. But then he gave it. Then he did. <laughs> yeah, uh, he did. But he wanted them to ask. And, and, but once they were forgiven, Johnson was very generous. He restored all of their property, of course, except slaves. And what this meant was that near the end of Lincoln's presidency, uh, the federal government was in the process of redistributing some of the land that had been confiscated during the war from rebels, redistributing this land in 40 acre plots to African American families. And the idea was that eventually these families would be able to own this land outright by, by purchasing it from the government. But when, when the war ends and Johnson takes over, some of these pardoned rebels begin to complain to him that they're going home and they're finding these uh, freed people, and I'm sure that's not the word they used, on their land and what, what's going on. And Johnson called the head of the Freedmen's Bureau to the White House. This was General Oliver Otis Howard, who was in charge of the Bureau of Freedmen, Refugees, and Abandoned Lands. This was the federal agency that was created to assist newly freed people in this transition from slavery to freedom. And, and this was the federal agency that was distributing these lands. And Johnson demanded an explanation. And Howard said, well, my orders were that we continue to distribute this land. And Johnson says, we're not doing that. And if I've pardoned someone, their land will be restored. And he actually made General Howard then go to the South 
and visit some of these places and tell these people that they were going to be evicted from the land. And in, of course, in many cases, this is the summer, late summer of 1865. In many cases, these people have already planted crops for the year. And General Howard had to go and tell these people, sorry, uh, this isn't your land. It's going to be restored to the original owner, of course, who in many cases had been the owner of these Your people. owner, yes. So for that's, a lot that's of- That's a fairly petty person from the time of it. <laughs> yeah. And well, for a lot of historians, this, this is kind of the sine qua non of reconstruction that without uh, widespread land redistribution, this will make the reconstruction enterprise a failure because newly freed people will not have the economic independence that they need. Your How element, many bills did he veto? I, I don't know off the top of my head. He, he, he <laughs> it was like 15. <laughs> it was a lot. Uh, but what's significant is that you have the first really major overrides, congressional overrides of presidential vetoes. Johnson vetoes the Civil Rights Bill in 1866, and the Republicans had essentially a veto-proof majority, and they were able to override Johnson's veto and enact the, the Civil Rights Act of 1866. And that's how they really wrest a lot of the control of Reconstruction away from Johnson. Right, they so they vetoed, they overrode um, just about as many bills as he vetoed. That's right. Just about all of them. Yeah, they, Johnson vetoed the renewal of the Freedmen's Bureau, that was overridden. And then there were a series of reconstruction acts that Johnson vetoed that Congress overrode. And, and that's the real tension then between Johnson and the Republican controlled Congress Grant, by the way, is still the commanding general of the armies. And by 1866, this feud between Johnson and Congress is getting so intense that Grant privately worries that Johnson might try some kind of a coup to overthrow Congress and renew the Civil War. And Grant issues orders to some of the commanders in the South to send uh, any surplus munitions, weapons to Northern military installations. Because back during the secession crisis, when Buchanan was president, uh, that didn't happen and this helped equip the Confederate army. Uh, so Grant was thinking ahead and he thought, you know, if Johnson tries something, we wanna make sure that if there's in effect a renewal of the civil war, that these, that these rebels won't have access to a lot of the material that's in our installations in the South. I'm going to, just a quick one. One of my favorite non-presidents of the 19th century was William Seward. Uh-huh. And, you know, he survived assassination. Why did he stay in the Johnson cabinet? He was much smarter and he was really good at his job. He could have done anything. He brought us Alaska. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure why why he stuck around and... He, uh, there's some great political cartoons from this era that show, uh, and you know, Shakespeare was something that most Americans were familiar with. So there's a lot of Shakespearean themed political cartoons. And there's some really great ones that initially show uh, Seward as kind of a loyal servant to King Andy as, <laughs> as he was lampoon. But then- oh, that burned all bit. Yeah, but then late, there's a really great cartoon that uh, that references Romeo and Juliet, where uh, Seward has stabbed Johnson, 
And the implication is that he's turned on him, you know, that they, they had been friends, but now they're no longer friends. So I'm not sure Seward is a, he's really kind of hard to pin down. Seward stayed, stayed so long unless he thought that he could do some good. He was so desperate to buy Alaska. I, I don't, yeah, I don't think it was that. Come on in. For the last time, President Johnson, it's Seward. Did you need something? Yes. Yes. I need to fire you, Mr. Secretary of State Seward. I I expect your reservation on my desk uh, first thing tomorrow. Not this again. Mr. Johnson, how many times must I reassure you that I'm not trying to undermine your authority? I have no designs on your job whatsoever. It's nothing personable, Sewage. I just got to fire all you bastards in the cabinet before my hands are tied. Are you planning to be abducted soon, Mr. Johnson? Mm, don't get your hopes up, Yankee. <laughs> this tough Tennessean already survived one assignation. But I just got wind that the damn radial Republicans in Congress want revenge for all the times I vetoed their dubious plans to deconstruct the South. So they're passing something called the Tin Ear of Orifice Act. That'll stop me from dismissing my cabinet minstrels without Senate approval. So start packing, Susie. I'll admit, sir, that law sounds rather draconian. Yeah, I thought it sounded French, but it sure doesn't sound American. Haven't they ever heard of segregation of powers? That might be the problem. But even if Congress is guilty of overreach, aren't you guilty of overreaction? If you fire an effective cabinet minister out of mere spite? I'm not being vindictive here, Soupy. It's a matter of principle. Whatever happened to excessive privilege? Oh, I'm sure it's alive and well. Well, then, I suppose I have no choice but to leave. Still, it seems an awful shame since I just purchased such a lovely gift for you. (laughs) What'd you do, Sooty? Buy me the world's biggest icebox so I can finally keep my damn drinks cold? Exactly! I just signed a treaty to purchase the Alaska Territory from Russia. Now, why would you go raiding the Treasury like that when we can barely pay soldiers to not protect free slaves? It was only seven million. That's less than two cents an acre. Seven million. Let's say two cents an acre. That's not scary. It's 350 million acres. And the best part is it's empty. What about them escarols? I believe the climate is too cold to grow endives. No, 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 I mean, them, them little brown fellas, what live in the frozen issues. Oh, you mean the Eskimos? Oh, don't worry. They can't vote. Mr. Johnson, if you fire me, you'll lose the chance to add as much territory to the United States as Mr. Polk did. Polk smoke. That little cannonball couldn't stand me. You do have your share of enemies, Mr. Johnson. True. Millions of people hate me because I'm so popular. But millions of people will love you if you give land in Alaska away to homesteaders. You just said it's too cold to grow nothing in the tungsten. Are people supposed to, what, start polar bear ranches? (laughs) No, there's probably gold or silver or even better, calcified whale blubber under the ground. Millions of dirt-poor white people can grow rich, thanks to you. Hmm. 
I'd been known as a great philanderer. Not a bad way to go down on history. There's that famous Johnson gift for cunning. Here's an idea. As soon as I announced the purchase, you resigned the presidency in order to serve as territorial governor of Alaska. Well, wouldn't that be something? I can build me a mansion on the Barrel Sea and be able to see Russia from my house. Maybe I can even wave hello to Catherine the Grape. You can certainly try, Mr. Johnson. But I ain't never appointed no vice president. Uh, who would take over when I'm gone? Oh, I'm sure we can find someone. So what do you think of my idea, Mr. Johnson? Super. I believe you have come up with a heck of a plan. Thank you, sir. To embarrass me. <laughs> you and those radish Republicans have baked up this Alaska scheme to burden me with a big, expensive Albert Ross. So people can say, yuck, yuck, yuck. Ain't that Johnson Feller dumb? Well, no dice, Sioux City. Yes, sir. It was folly of me to think otherwise. So I take it my dismissal is effective right away? Hell no, Sewer Rat. They'll only pry that seat from your cold, dead butt. I don't understand, Mr. Johnson. When the public gets word that my damn fool Secretary of State has bought a great big field of walrus turds, they're going to be begging me to fire you, and the Senate is going to say I can't. And then people are going to vote them fool Republicans out of Congress, and I will be re-erected to the White House. <laughs> I'm going to run you lemons right over the cliff. Oh, you're a clever one, Mr. Johnson. You've trumped us all. Someday they'll be calling you President Trump. President Trump. <laughs> That's a silly name. James. Yeah, so I just wanted to, to talk a little bit um you know, bring my civics teacher thing out here about the awkward mechanics of veto overrides because, okay, so Congress passes a bill, the president vetoes it. He says, I don't like this bill. Congress overrides the veto, which then puts the president in the situation of having to enforce the bill that he tried to veto because, of course, it's the executive branch that would have to carry out any of the provisions of the law, including any appropriations or any, you know, um, agency actions. And so there kind of is this temptation to which I'm sure Johnson explored of, yeah, I have to do this, but I'm not going to do it very well. I'm going to do it in the most piss poor way I can because I don't want to do this in the first place. And, you know, if, you know, that's that's a really hard thing to try to what are you going to do? Sue the president? You can't really do that. So, you know, the, the temptation there is when these veto overrides happen is to enforce the law in the most minimally you know, effective way that you can manage. Yes. And, and one of the measures that Johnson vetoed and was overridden on was the Tenure of Office Act. I was going to which, ask about that. Yeah, which, which limited the president's ability to fire people. And, and when Congress created these new Reconstruction Acts, they, they essentially pressed the reset button on Reconstruction. And they said, we're going to start all over again. And all the work that had been done under Lincoln and Johnson was thrown out. We're starting over. And the South was divided into military districts. And of course, Andrew Johnson is the commander in chief. So even though he, he vetoed these bills and was overridden, he's still the commander in chief. And what he could do then is try and appoint generals who are more sympathetic to Andrew Johnson's way of thinking than to the Republicans in Congress way of thinking. And the Secretary of War 
is caught in the middle of this, Edwin M. Stanton. Edwin M. Stanton becomes more sympathetic to Republicans in Congress. And Johnson tries to fire him. And this is in violation of the Tenure of Office Act. And this, this is the, the event that leads to Congress impeaching Andrew Johnson. Our first congressional impeachment. First Let's talk about the impeachment. Let's talk, yes. Well, my first, actually, was the Tenure of Office Act passed specifically in the hopes that Johnson would do what he did so Congress could then try to, I mean, basically, what was it, was it a setup? I think it was. Yeah, I think that this was a dare. You know, we'll see, you know, if, if right, try it, go ahead and try it and see what happens. Yeah, I think it was, I think it was a bit of a trap that they were setting for Johnson, sure. Yeah. And he walked right into it. He did. Ran, really. But yeah. if, <laughs> I sense it, but if they had never, I mean, I love, like, James, thank you for talking about just the awkwardness of overriding vetoes, since that sounds like it was relatively new. So Johnson vetoing it, my guess is he probably didn't think there was going to be anything that would come of it. Well, I, he knew uh, that he would probably be overridden because of the, the vast majority of seats that the Republicans held in Congress, and, and he was overridden. But it really does create this constitutional showdown. Can, can Congress limit the president's ability to, for example, fire cabinet members and replace them with new people? And, and Congress was trying to limit this in an effort to keep Stanton in there. And Johnson, yeah, Johnson fell right into this trap. And you have this showdown then between the Republicans in Congress and President Johnson, and he's, he's impeached. The House approves a series of articles of impeachment, and, and then he gets put on trial in the Senate, and he avoids conviction by one vote. Would, um, how much credence do you give to the theory that he bribed the one, who was the one senator? Ross? There were, yeah, there was a group of Republicans who, who did not vote to convict and I don't think it had anything to do with bribery. From what I've read, it was more about concern of, well, a couple of things. One is who would become the president then because there was no vice president. Mm -hmm. The new president would be the president pro tem of the Senate. And that was a, Republic, a radical Republican senator yeah. named Benjamin Wade. And he was not exactly Mr. Popularity. And I think there were some who had concerns with Wade succeeding Johnson. And, and then the other issue was the, the precedent that this would establish. And, and you see some talk in newspapers and in private correspondence of this fear that the United States would become like Mexico. And, and Mexico was associated with political instability. And there was this fear that if we remove this president, that this would destabilize the American Republic even further and might set us down this, this road we don't wanna go, where we end up having a lot of volatility with into an argument that you hear tie we have heard multiple times since with the clinton and trump mm -hmm. uh, it was also the reasons people were saying we can't uh impeach w and it kind of makes what happened with nixon all the more remarkable in retrospect that Nixon just resigned without without seeing it through to that the both parties and both parties united to <laughs> kick his ass out. February twenty first, eighteen sixty eight. 
President Andrew Johnson attempts to fire Secretary of War Edwin Stanton. Stanton receives a telegram with one word. Stick. Well, stick I will. I will not let that charlatan of a president oust me from office. I will camp here out on my sofa like a battalion entrenched in the battlefield to show the country that we will not be pushed around by that bully. I should not be kicked out, nor coughed out, nor dragged out, nor reasoned out, nor shamed out of office. The next morning, the secretary receives a knock on the door. Who's there? I shall not be kicked out, nor cuffed out, nor dragged out. Relax, Mr. Stanton. It's just us. You House Republicans wondering if we can join you for breakfast. Well, I'm supposed to be barricaded, but sure, come on in, fellows. That bacon you brought sure sounds tempting. It's a Stanton, Edwin Stanton. Please come out, Edwin. I know you're in there. I mean, secretary. I mean, ex-secretary. Uh oh, Edwin. Looks like the jig is up. Johnson's cronies have come to take over. <laughs> Just let him try. As President Johnson's replacement for Secretary of War, I demand that you vacate this office immediately. I demand you open this door before I break it. <laughs> Dang it, Edwin. Oh, my head. Why, General Thomas, how could you two drop in? (laughs) Very funny, Edwin. What brings you here, Thomas? I thought I had you arrested. You did, you cur. They dragged me away from my breakfast and me with a splitting hangover. But now I'm out on bail. Uh, Well, come on in. Let's discuss this over some whiskey. This little hair of the dog could do you some good. Don't mind if I do. Uh, uh, what are these guys doing here? You're having a party when you're hiding from the president? I'm not hiding, Lorenzo. I'm standing my ground. If you were a real secretary for, you'd understand strategic entrenchment. With bacon and eggs and whiskey. Yes. Now, listen, Edwin, be reasonable. You know this tenure of office thing was just Congress's way of entrapping the president. I am hereby taking over as interim war secretary. You are doing no such thing. That rogue Johnson cannot fire me. He cannot force me to leave this war room. He is determined to spoil the entire reconstruction endeavor, and I am just as determined to see that it succeeds. I shall not be kicked out, nor cuffed out, nor dragged out, nor reasoned out, or shamed out of office. Yeah, yeah, we know, but Edwin, even Congress knows the Tenure of Office Act is a lousy law, and the president has every right to fire anyone he wants. Well, let's just see how this impeachment trial pans out. Then we'll see who is breaking the law. Quick, Stanton, hide. We'll cover for you. Act natural, act natural. Hello? What's all this? And and where is Stanton? Put your dukes down, idiot. You dare try to go head-to-head with the man who won the Civil War? Is General Sherman behind you? (laughs) Uh... Oh, sorry, General Grant. We, um, didn't know it was you. Very funny. Where's the secretary? Oh, there you are, Edwin. Uh, Why are you hiding behind that ficus? I'm not hiding. I'm reconnoitering. (laughs) Whatever. I thought you'd be coming over to my headquarters for my protection. 
protect him? He's no longer the legitimate Secretary of War. Why don't you protect me, General Grant? I should be in this office. Me, 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 me. Who are you? I am the Secretary of War. You're an imposter. Oh. Shall I arrest him? Yes. Yes. Uh, never mind. He was arrested once. Four days later, Stanton is still barricaded in his office. No one's here. I'm not coming out. I shall not be kicked out or come or dragged out or reason I'm ashamed out of office. I barricaded this office as securely as Edwin, come home this instant. Ellen, my dear. Do you know I'm here to protect my office? How how did you get Edwin, into... if you're going to barricade your door, at least figure out which way the door opens. Oh, how in the world did you ever win a war? Yeah, Ellen, that is cruel. Now help me move the bureau back. <sighs> Will you just resign your post already and stop this political posturing? I, I, good lord, Edwin, what is that rank smell? Have you not had access to the privy? What? Oh, no. I mean, yes. I'm, oh, the smell. This is the Irish stew one of my sergeants and I boiled up. I'm afraid it rather burned up the place. Oh, Edwin, this place is a sty. How can you live like this? <laughs> Look, Ellen, my love, I'm, I'm determined to remain in my office until Johnson's impeachment trial is finished. Oh, why don't you be a dear and go on home and... Bring me back some fresh linens and maybe some mm, decent food? Certainly not. If you insist on playing the stubborn fool, you can just stay here and wallow in your own filth. Alan, be a love and peek out that door, would you? What? Very well. Well, what am I looking for? Is there anyone out there? Uh, I need to run to the lavatory, but if I'm caught outside the office, they will arrest me and have me fired. Well, good. Then maybe this charade will end. Ellen! Oh, for heaven's sake. No, there is no one outside. You may go. Oh, thank you, darling. You are a chap. Go down. You wench! Johnson's men were right down the hall. <laughs> Are you really so desperate to see this end that you'd be willing to betray your own husband and lose the fight for Reconstruction? A pox on the Reconstruction. This is a childish game, Edwin. Nonsense. I stand by my principles. I shall not be kicked out or coughed out or... Or dragged or shamed, <laughs> yes. You've made your point ridiculously clear. Oh, Ellen, I've missed you. I have a little plan to sneak away for a night. We, we can... Make it up and spend some time together. Oh, do tell. Secretary Stanton conceived a plot to sneak away in an army ambulance and spend a night at home. However, he returned the next day and spent the next two months in his office while the impeachment trial of Andrew Johnson was underway. Go away! I shan't be kicked out and dragged out in her... Um... Uh, shamed? Uh, who is it? Oh, Mr. Former Secretary, it's me, the current Secretary. I have news on the impeachment. <laughs> well, what's the news? I was so tickled to hear how the House managed so quickly to impeach. How was the trial in the Senate? Mr. Mr. Johnson managed to keep his office. He won by a single vote. Well, <laughs> confound it. Well... 
I guess it's over. I guess I have no choice but to finally leave. I guess I'll be forced to surrender and go home to my own bed. To my wife's cooking. In the hot bath. Well, Thomas, it's all yours now. Here's the key. Oh, and oh, feel free to keep any of the whiskey or the stew that might still be left over. Ugh. Ugh. We're going to Ugh. need some serious reconstruction right here. Ugh. <sighs> What about Johnson's disastrous public speaking tour? Yeah, that, that's a great story. This was in 1866 when uh, he's got growing tensions with Congress and there are midterm elections or congressional elections coming up. And Johnson was invited to attend the, dedic the dedication of the cornerstone for Stephen A. Douglas's tomb in Chicago. And this was a big deal, and Johnson accepted the invitation. Uh, but he used this as a campaign opportunity. He got on the train, and he dragged a lot of the military heroes from the Civil War with him. He made General Grant come with him. He made Admiral Farragut come with him as props in this tour. And on his way to Chicago, and then on his way back to Washington, Johnson's train made several stops. It would stop in all these towns and Johnson would get out and he would make speeches. And at some of these stops, Johnson was getting heckled by people. <laughs> and Johnson was not the kind of person to, to tolerate this. And he would fire back at some of the people in the crowd and actually get involved in these, these verbal exchanges with, with regular citizens. What was that about my mama? Yeah. And was, he, was he good at it? Like, was no, it like, he was horrible at it. He would say these. It's another very Trumpian thing he did. That sounds, yeah. sounds about right. Or, or Trump was Johnsonian. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> but he would, he would get involved in these exchanges and he was really bad at it. And, you know, there, there was a, a notorious speech that he made in St. Louis. And, and this is all the more poignant because he, he attended the event in Chicago. And then the next day, they went to Springfield and visited Lincoln's tomb. And there was a lot of, Johnson didn't speak at Lincoln's tomb, but there was a lot of commentary in the newspapers about, gee, you know, if only Johnson would learn a lesson by visiting Lincoln's tomb and take on some of the, the character that his predecessor had. But then he, he stops in St. Louis, which was the real low point, because it's in St. Louis where Johnson kind of goes off script. And you know, his, his presidency was characterized by, you know, sometimes they're called riots, but they're really massacres, massacres of African-Americans. And there had been one in New Orleans. And in his St. Louis speech, Johnson blames this New Orleans massacre on Republicans. He says, this is the fault of Republicans. And he mocks Republicans. He says, well, they're comparing themselves to Jesus Christ. And, and if that's the case, then I guess that makes me Judas. And then he gets into this verbal sparring match with people who are heckling him. And it's just an absolute fiasco. 
And in the midterm elections, Republicans gained even more seats. <laughs> I can't really imagine comparing yourself to Judas and then that going well for you with the yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's biblical it's humor. Kiss of death. You know who we all love? <laughs> yeah, everyone's favorite, Judas. <laughs> it's really extraordinary. This was called the Swing Around the Circle. Mm-hmm. And there was a, uh, a cartoonist who even put together like a, uh, a little book of cartoons making fun of Johnson on his swing around the circle, showing him. Because, of course, the big draw was not Johnson, it was Grant. Mm-hmm. And this irritated mm-hmm. John. His train would stop, he would come out, and then people would yell for Grant. <laughs> and, and, and they wanted to see Grant. They wanted to hear Grant. They didn't really want to hear what Johnson had to say. Grant was the, the great hero. And that clearly irritated Johnson. He's sandwiched between two heroes as the ultimate heel. Yeah, he's he's the big heel. I think we began by asking, can we learn anything new? And you know, none of none of this is especially new. I mean, we've known about all this for a long time. But again, our our time leads us to maybe look at these issues in a different way. And yeah, doesn't Reconstruction seem all very relevant today? Mm. Yeah. And, and a lot of the issues that we fought about during Reconstruction, we're still, we're still debating and fighting about today. And they actually resurgent in a really ugly way, too. Yeah, I used to say that, uh, like when Lincoln endorsed limited suffrage for African Americans, I used to say to, to students, well, you know, that's a position that wouldn't get anybody elected today. But now I'm not so sure. <laughs> uh, well, you know, it's like, you know, the... Uh, the greatness or not of a president can be measured in how long it took us to recover from what they did. And uh, so that's why Johnson is unequivocally the worst president we have ever had. We are still, yes. Although there was, and this is, oh, go ahead, Dr. Norman. Well, I was just going to say that Grant uh, actually uh, did a lot to make up for all of Johnson's failures. And we saw under Grant, I, a functioning multiracial democracy in the South. The, the tragedy though of reconstruction is that it didn't last. Right. But really um, the Republicans that. under in Congress and with, with Grant as president, they were, they were really able to make a lot of progress. And we'll hear more about that progress in our next episode. <laughs> oh, what a button there, Joe. Yeah, hey, yeah. I'm learning. DB Comedy presents The Electables. This episode's sketches were written and produced by Gina Bucola, Sandy Bykowski, Joseph Fedorko, Ramona Joy, Sylvia Mann, Paul Moulton, Patrick J. Riley, and Tommy Spears. This episode's sketches were performed by Gina Bucola, Sandy Bykowski, Joseph Fedorko, Ramona Joy, Paul Moulton, Patrick J. Riley, and Tommy Spears. Original music written and performed by Throop McClure. Audio production by Joseph Fedorko. Sound effects procured at freesound.org. Contributions to DB Comedy are graciously accepted by going to the DB Comedy donation page at fracturedatlas.org, the nonprofit fiscal sponsor of DB Comedy. Donations are tax deductible to the fullest extent allowed by law. For more information on DB Comedy Delectables, visit DB Comedy's website, dbcomedy.com, or DB Comedy's host page on simplecast.com. Follow us on Facebook at DB Comedy or Democracy Burlesque. 
Thanks for listening. Thanks for downloading. Don't forget to subscribe and don't forget to like.